0: Welcome to the Weekend University podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organise lecture days once per month, where attendees get a full day of talks from the UK's leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. Our podcast features in-depth interviews with our speakers, so you can learn more about their work. To keep updated on upcoming events and new lectures, you can sign up for the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com. This episode features a lecture from our very first Weekend University event, which took place in December 2017. The talk is on psychedelics, mental health, and mystical experiences, and it's from Dr. David Luke. Dr. Luke is a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Greenwich, where he teaches an undergraduate course on the psychology of exceptional human experience. His research focuses on transpersonal experiences, anomalous phenomena, and altered states of consciousness, especially via psychedelics. David has published more than 100 academic papers in this area, and five books. Enjoy the show. I'm David Luke, I'm a psychologist. I
1: wasn't always a psychologist. screwed up teenager like every other psychologist and wanted to know why so I went away and studied psychology and of course here I am many many years later and I'm still screwed up but at least I know why. So that's my this one. Comes in as it's something. So that's what I'm going to be talking to you about today. Uh, I'm based at the University of Greenwich, not far from here, just over the water. It's actually one of our rivals Burke but you know that's okay. Um, and uh, based in the psychology department, I do a lot of research on psychedelics. I sometimes do research when I'm not on psychedelics as well, but that is <laughs> anywhere near as much fun. Um, and I do a lot of research on what I call exceptional human experience, so all the kind of the weird end of the spectrum of uh, psychology. I teach on a mainstream psychology course, what we call abnormal psychology, which is a, a, an awful phrase actually. But that's what you get in an average psychology degree. You get you know, the stuff, the, the normal, so-called normal psychology, you know, the stuff in the middle, like social psychology, and individual differences, personality, and all of that, neuroscience, and then you get abnormal psychology, so-called, all the, all the stuff that happens when things go wrong. Um, but what I teach is, is the other end of the spectrum, and those are unusual experiences, which are not necessarily pathological, So called exceptional psychology. Uh, you don't get a lot of that on a American psychology degree it's all about the normal stuff or what happens when it goes wrong I'm talking about the, the really interesting kind of weird end of the spectrum uh, so one of the things we do at Greenwich is uh, we organise a conference there some of you may have heard of it called Breaking Convention have you heard of it? That's one of our directors down there what, she's doing. what are you doing here? Um, and we started out actually at the University of Canterbury in Kent in 2011 and we thought you know I hadn't had a psychon, uh, psychedelic conference in the UK, we put one on, and we were enormously surprised, there was about 500 people turned up, and it was a great success, and they weren't all hippies either, which was another surprise, um, mostly academics, mostly hippie academics actually, there you know, and so we thought we'd do that again, uh, a couple of years later we did at the University of Greenwich this time, in 2013, It had something like 700 people come, uh, we were kind of, Enormously uh, rewarded by that experience. So we kept doing it every two years at Greenwich 2015. We had something like 800 people come. There's Amy at the front, of you. look, you can see one of them just down there. That's you, isn't <laughs> it? Sorry, Amy. Um, and you know, the whole conference itself, just coming was kind of quite a transformative experience. We had over 150 speakers, workshops, we weren't giving out any psychedelics, hasten oh, yeah. to, to that. And kind of music and art and after parties, and just being there, people felt refreshed and changed. Um, and so, of thought we put it on again uh, this year, and uh, we thought it might look something like that. Uh, and it wasn't far off, actually. I almost forgot the photo this time, but uh, there was about a thousand people coming. And just telling you all that, not just to plug our brilliant convention, but also to say that this is a really expanding field of interest within the Academy. It's kind of literally a mushrooming field of research and scholars from every department come to our conference and they're growing year on year. Uh, It's a hot-button topic, you might say, uh, if you're prone to saying things like that. Now, the thing about psychedelics is not only are they becoming more prevalent in their research within the academy, the number of psychedelics we know about has been steadily increasing. Um, In fact, not just steadily increasing, but exponentially increasing. So being a good scientist, i tried to plot a graph on this, and it was said, you know, in 1900 we knew of about two psychedelic substances at that time, and uh, Alexander Shogin, the godfather of MDMA, said that, you know, the number of psychedelics is, that we know about has increased by a factor of 10 every 50 years, so sure enough by 1950 there was something like 20 psychedelics, by the year 2000 there were 200 different psychedelic substances that we knew of, uh, so sure enough This is one of my test subjects. (laughs) (laughs) What's that put in your coffee? Um, And so I wanted to check this. So in 2012, I did a kind of quick survey, we reckon there's about 350 different psychedelic substances we know of, which means that we're on course for this exponential increase. By 2050, there'll be 2,000. By 2100, there'll be 20,000 different psychedelic substances, all of which put you in kind of somewhat of a slightly different old state of consciousness. So there's a lot to, to discover and explore, what it can tell us about neuroscience, about human psychology, and you know the weird ways in which you can experience reality, whatever that is. So for those of you who don't know and are able to blot out the weird noise coming out, out of the wall behind me, I give you a really chewy definition of what psychedelics are, and that is they are substances which without causing physical addiction, Actually, some of them do cause physical addiction, but we won't talk about those. Uh, craving, major physiological disturbances, delirium. Actually, some of them are called deliriums, so but some will ignore those as well. Disorientation or amnesia, and yes, some of them do cause amnesia. Um, they more or less reliably produce thought, mood, and perceptual changes, otherwise rarely experienced except in dreams, contemplative and religious exaltation, which will be. Looking at it in more detail, and flashes of in vivid involuntary memory and acute psychosis. So that's a kind of somewhat useful definition. Uh, but we'll move on from that. Essentially, psychedelics make uh, changes, qualitative changes to your state of consciousness. Most other psychoactive drugs will just, you know, stimulate you or kind of reduce your levels of stimulation. They'll relax you. you know, like you know, Stimulants, for instance, or you know, benzodiazepines. But psychedelics change everything about your experience of consciousness from your sense of self, uh, your sense of time, uh, your kind of moods, your perceptions of the outside world. Everything can change in a psychedelic experience. So I'm going to give you a little bit of the science behind that. It's going to be very small. Here's a chemistry lesson. Um, there you go, that's the chemistry lesson over. No, I want to pack that a little bit for you. So there's two major classes of psychedelics that we know of. Uh, the first type are called tryptamines, uh, and they are strictly similar to tryptamine, which is also the, the base compound of, of uh, serotonin. Uh, serotonin, as you probably know, is a very um, important neurochemical in the brain. It's a, a responsible for our kind of mood, our kind of keeping us kind of happy and alert and also for higher cognitive functions like everyday good stuff like thinking and problem solving and decision making. So it's a very important chemical in our brain. And these psychedelics, tryptamines, uh, are somewhat structurally similar to serotonin, and they also work in a large part on the serotonergic system in the brain. And they include things like LSD, psilocybin, which is the active principle of magic mushrooms, and DMT, which is naturally occurring psychedelic, um, in the human body. Uh, there's another class of uh, psychoactive which is called phenethylamines. They're more structurally similar to dopamine. Uh, they also work on the dopaminergic system, but also affect the serotonin system as well. Uh, so you can think of these as being like psychedelic amphetamines, because they belong to the amphetamine family, and they include things like mescaline, MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy, and all these kind of new designer drugs like 2C-B, 2C-I, 2C, whatever you want. <laughs> um, all the alphabetamines, if you want to call them that. <laughs> Many of them, anyway. Uh, and so, you know, it would be kind of quite nice for our understanding of neurochemistry and uh, neurobiology if there was just these two categories, well, there's not. There's a whole bunch of other psychedelics which don't fit easily into those categories. Things like uh, diterfenoids, mu uh, opioid, receptor agonists, anticaramine hertics, NMDA antagonists, cannabinoids, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it makes it all the more complicated and more interesting as well. Um, that's the chemistry lesson over. Uh, I think, oh no, I lied. Just to, just to kind of demonstrate that to you in a bit more of a kind of graphical way, you'll notice that uh, most of these all kind of have a very similar structure. Uh, they're all structurally similar to serotonin, LSD, DMT, silicin, and and DMT. They all have this basic tryptamine structure. And then the one, the other one now, On the right at the bottom, there is mescaline, which has this kind of more dopamine like structure. There you go, that's tryptamine, and there's dopamine. There you go, that's the chemistry lesson, definitely over with. Um, Moving on to the neuroscience. Um, Now, we didn't know much about the neuroscience of of psychedelics, I mean, some amount, but we'd never done any brain imaging with psychedelics until very recently. Uh, And that would seem quite strange because, you know, high tech brain imaging has been around for for quite a while. Uh, But there's one kind of small component to doing research, and that is availability and and legality and all those kind of things. And something happened in the 1960s called Prohibition, which made uh, psychedelics illegal. Um, Now, that was aimed, supposedly, to stop people taking them recreationally. It didn't do that, because the number of people taking all recreational drugs, so-called, has steadily increased year on year since the late 1960s when Prohibition came in. Uh, including psychedelics. And they've got cheaper, more available, uh, they're purer, there's more people taking them, and they're taking more of them than they ever were. Uh, So Prohibition didn't really stop people taking drugs. What it did do is it stopped uh, researchers doing research with them scientifically in humans. So there wasn't really any human studies in psychedelics until very recently. Uh, That research began very quietly in the 90s, became a bit of a renaissance by the noughties, and by 2012, you know, we were doing brain imaging research finally the, with these substances. Uh, and that began, a lot of it, in London. Actually, it began in Zurich before that. but we have been pioneering in, here in Imperial, apart from here, in London. And so they did the first, uh, they didn't do the first, they did the most major fMRI study of psilocybin. And um, they wanted to know what happens in the human brain when you give somebody psychedelics. And if you'd asked any neuroscientists were their fantastic brain imaging grants, so, You know, what happens in the human brain? You give someone a psychedelic, out, you know, this intense, overwhelming experience, pretty much all of them would say, well, you know, there's a part of your brain which is an increase in activity. And they'd all have that pet theory about their favorite bit of the brain, you know, the neuroscientists like. Uh, but they were all wrong, because there wasn't any increase in activity in the brain. I'm going to show you that. Uh, there was lots of great media reports, though, um, about the possible implications of this. And uh, I even took part as a subject in this, so I have kind of first-hand information of this. I was kind of put in an MEG scanner, um, which if you don't know, is uh, a kind of huge kind of cylinder full of liquid nitrogen above your head. Uh, this is almost like a semiconductor and picks up very, very small uh, amounts of activity, of electrical activity in the brain. And you get this kind of readout. Of, like, a really super refined EEG, if you know what an EEG is, and it's called MEG, however, it's called magnetoencephalography, for those of you who don't know. I don't know what's going on with my. you can just see that there. Nothing to do, however, with uh, Magneto from the X Men. He's obviously a bit averse to uh, doing this kind of research, hence the metal helmet. Um, Anyway, so I was injected with psilocybin and put in what looks like a perming device. Uh, <laughs> but it gives you a bit of a cosmic perm. Uh, but I did live to tell the tale. Know, keep, this is what I did on my holidays kind of thing, sorry. OK, so, so the interesting thing was they didn't find an increase in activity anywhere in the brain. And the lead researcher, Robin, said, well, you know, seeing a decrease was surprising. What they actually found was a decrease in this key region. He said we thought profound experience equaled more activity, but not necessarily. And what they found was this kind of brain image here, kind of indicates quite clearly all the increases in brain activity are in red. Well, there aren't any unless you're kind of blind. Uh, they are only blue, which means that those regions are decreased in activity. And what we find is that most of the decreases in a region called the default mode network, which is. Uh, to do with your kind of sense of self and your kind of external awareness and your kind of sense of attention and awareness to the outside world, and what they found that the d- decreases in activity in that region were actually related to the intensity of the experience. You get these nice kind of correlational graphs like that. That those people who have more intense subjective experiences have more decrease in activity in this key hub region in the brain. Uh, as I said. Uh, reduction of activity in default mode network enabled a state of unconstrained cognition. Now that's not the whole picture, however, but it was a massive surprise. They then re-analyzed their data, and uh, in a slightly different way, looked at interconnectivity between different brain regions. So this uh, this kind of schematic here is kind of your brain, if you like, or, or my brain actually, uh, and a few other people's. And the, the, the circles around the edge represent of different regions of the brain. And the lines in between represent the amount of communication between those different regions. So the one on the left is your brain not on drugs, it's your brain on a placebo, and you'll see there's a small amount of interconnectivity between different regions of the brain. And then the one on the right, you'll notice is a little bit different. Uh, That's under the influence of psilocybin. And the first thing you notice is it doesn't look like a scrambled egg, which was a massive surprise as well, because that's what we were told to believe for many years. You know, this is your brain on drugs. Cracking the egg into a wine bag. Um, what actually happens is there's a, a lot more interconnectivity between different regions of the brain. It's so a hyperconnectivity. So, you know, suddenly your cipital alone, strikes up the conversation with your temporal load. Oh, hi. We haven't chatted in a while. We were strangers. But now we're good friends, suddenly. As interesting things occur. So, now how do you kind of rationalize that with the idea that, Okay, you've got this hyperconnectivity, but there's also no increase in activity in the membrane, in fact, a decrease in this key region. They seem somewhat incongruous initially, but then think of it like this Monday mornings and tomorrow morning, uh, think of all the people who are going to drive to work in London. It's kind of, going to be quite hectic on the road, especially with all the snow. We nearly did make it here. Uh, and you just say, okay, like half of the people who have to drive to work just stay at home and watch Rick and Morty. There's probably better educational value anyway. And the other half of you go off to interesting places like Bognor Regis and uh, Birmingham and other places that begin with big. And that's kind of what's happening in the brain, your, your, your brain being the country. And that there's more <laughs> communication between different regions, but there's less activity going on overall. With that awful analogy, you'll be delighted to know that's the end of the neuroscience lecture. Uh, It's not rocket science, is it? But then rocket science is quite simple anyway, so don't worry about the neuroscience. Uh, We'll move on to the psychology, because that's the important thing, I think. Uh, And so what are the basic psychological effects? Um, I'm going to give you a really chewy definition, you can probably skip all of that. They affect all of our mental functions, perception, emotion, thinking, body awareness, our sense of self, our perceptual sensory effects, often but not always a primary, Objects in our field of vision appear brighter or duller, larger or smaller, seem to be shifting shape and melting. Sounds are softer or louder or harsher or gentler. We hear new rhythms in the wind, our emotions overflow or dry up. Anxiety or fear or pleasure or relaxation, all feelings wax and wade. Our thinking processes speed up or slow down. If you're feeling any kind of strange sensations, that's just me talking. Thoughts themselves become confused or clearer. The significance of things take on more importance than the things themselves. A meaning becomes amplified. Time collapses. In the blink of an eye, two hours pass, or time expands. A minute contains a never-ending march of sensations and ideas. We feel the body no longer exists, or that the mind and the body have separated. So there's many, many, many things that can occur. In short, psychedelics affect every aspect of our consciousness. So that's a quote from uh, Rich Strasser. I mean, the, the bottom lines are taken no message, essentially. Um, but it's important to remember that the substances themselves are not the whole story. Uh, and this kind of mistake was made earlier on. When they were looking at these substances back in the 1950s, they thought, you know, that these things are psychotomimetic. Now, they just discovered the first neurotransmitter at the time, serotonin. They realized that LSD, which they recently just discovered, also had a structure, a structure similar to serotonin. They figured, you know, psychosis could then therefore be a kind of imbalance of chemicals in the brain. And things like LSD could mimic psychosis. And so these things were researched for their properties as psychotomimetics, things that mimic psychosis. And they did things like put people in a room, handcuff them to a bed, and lock the door on their first ever acid trip without any preparation. And guess what? You know, people had bad experiences. <laughs> See? It's a psychotomimetic; metic, They had a psychotic reaction. There you go. It proves our theory. Um, what they then, shortly after, discovered was if you put somebody in a, in a room with nice lighting, and you don't handcuff them, and you, know, you play nice music, and you have a nice therapist there to help them through the experience. Tend to have nice experiences. Go figure. So uh, the, the context in which people take these substances are extremely important, and so it's not just the substance, it, i.e. the dosage and what the what the drug is, uh, set, i.e. your psychological framework and the setting where you take the drug, are as equally important. So those three things together, substance, set, and setting, are what the, the factors that predict the kind of experience you'll have. Um, and that was one of the kind of most important things that Timothy Leary did before he left Harvard and became the high priest of psychedelia under a bit of a kind of media storm. Um, Because he came up with the phrase. There he is. There he is as high priest of psychedelia shortly after leaving Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He wasn't always blue. Uh, (laughs) Well, what next? Okay, so how do we uh, ameliorate then the, the, the possibility for... Psychological difficult psychological experiences, i.e., bad trips. I mean, we don't no longer call them bad trips; we call them difficult psychological experiences. The setting and are quite important. But you're all asking, well, you know, how often do these bad experiences occur? And we can't say with any certainty. There's a little bit of data now coming through, uh, mostly based on survey reports. Um, in the clinical context, uh, for instance, at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, it's a leading medical university in the States. They've been giving people psilocybin for experiments. And they said out of several hundred participants they've had first, so far, they've given them psilocybin in a, in a well-prepared and contained context. Only one person has had a, a lasting negative experience. So in the right setting, you can reduce the prevalence of, of a difficult or bad trips quite significantly. If you look at recreational users, there are some online surveys being conducted couple of thousand uh, respondents, um, those in the blue, you can't read the key probably, so I can make up anything, but um, I'm going to tell you honestly that the people in the blue region, over 50% are those who never had a bad experience on psychedelics, these are recreational users. Uh, those in the green are those people who had a bad experience, uh, maybe one, about 10% of the time. Uh, those, the little sliver of red, are those people who always had bad experiences. Those are the ones who probably shouldn't be taking psychedelics. Uh, so, the prevalence of, of difficult psychological experiences is you know, relatively positive, uh, but you know, they do happen, of course. Um, and I can you know, break down that data for different drugs. Different drugs seem to have different prevalence rates for difficult experiences. But the way people are looking at it now, the researchers, they're saying, well, even the difficult part of the trip, now, that might not be that the whole trip is difficult or challenging. Uh, just sections of it and usually people report that they get their best insights from those challenging experiences so it may be kind of the long, dark tea time of the soul uh, but that they have kind of positive rewards from going through that troublesome period and certainly within a clinical context, in a the therapeutic context, those difficult experiences are, are kind of somewhat expected and also quite useful because it allows you know the, the, the person to work through difficult experiences or psychological um, sticking points or traumas or whatever it may be. So they're kind of gold to the therapist really. Uh, so long as the person ultimately comes out of it feeling like they've resolved the issues or that they're not traumatised or re-traumatised by the actual experience, we're making progress. Uh, okay, so I'll leave that there for now, but what about um, the onset of psychosis then? I mean, Not all difficult experiences lead to to psychotic reactions. Uh, And so what is the prevalence of of psychosis? This is an interesting question. It wasn't really answered until recently, um, but it used to be said in the 60s, you know, if you've taken LSD three times, by definition, you're clinically insane. Uh, Now, I don't know who said that, but it was kind of one of those things that were bandied around, you know, one of these urban myths. You don't now think that's true, either. it wasn't until recently there was a couple of large-scale epidemiological surveys were conducted across large kind of cross-sections of, of, of people in the United States, 130,000 people in two different surveys each, and uh, they looked at people's previous use of, of or life use of, of drugs and their incidence of psychiatric treatment and mental health problems. And they found that all, well, virtually all drugs were related to worse mental health Conditions so that you know if you have a history of taking drugs, you typically had a history of mental health conditions. You were more likely to. There's you know, a trend, except for psychedelics, uh, and they found that actually, if you drill it down to certain substances, people who taken LSD and psilocybin had lower incidences of psychological distress than the than the, the national population, than the national average. Um, one year, uh, psychiatric medication inpatient treatment was reduced, reduced with those people had used psilocybin, for instance. And just to put that graphically, uh, you would expect these bars to be on the right-hand side of the dotted line because exactly. that would indicate a, a kind of uh, an increased tendency to have these kind of psychiatric uh, indicators if you're taking these drugs. And what we find is most of these are actually below the dotted line so that the general use of psychedelics is associated with better mental health across a large... Population uh, surveys. Now that doesn't mean that individuals won't have a psychotic reaction if they take psychedelic, um, because we know that does happen. Everyone's got a story of a friend of a friend who took LSD and went mad and never came back. Uh, so, how is it we see across large populations? We don't find any trends, but we have individual cases. So, uh, now you can't extrapolate from individual cases, of course, but what you can say is that. Possibly there are people in society who have a propensity or underlying like predisposition to develop psychosis, and taking a psychedelic may be a trigger for that, particularly if it's not taken in the right context, the right setting, center, i.e., in a healthy, trusted environment. But on the whole, we don't see a large-scale epidemic of psychosis. Uh, if you're looking at the clinical data, I mean in, in the 1950s and the 60s, these substances were used are on a kind of fairly large scale for treating psychiatric conditions uh, within psychiatric institutions, and I'm not going to kind of crunch through all of that, but basically the incidence of, of suicide was no greater than in the rest of the psychiatric population, and in some cases much lower as well. So, so, just to sum that up, within the clinical context, we don't find a, an elevated risk of psychosis and suicide through the use of psychedelics within a clinical context, and we don't find an epidemiological relationship between psychosis and use of psychedelics in a general population either. And what we also know about these substances is, from a clinical perspective, not recreationally, is that the physiological risk of these substances, at least the, the known classic psychedelics, uh, are very, relatively low. So for instance, there's no known overdose value for psilocybin or LSD. i just said that again. There's no known overdose value for psilocybin or LSD. And we know that because they've tried to test it, and haven't found it. We have stories of drug smugglers, you know, know, the classic way of smuggling drugs across borders. If you've got relatively small quantities, you can wrap it up in something and swallow it. Uh, The thing is with LSD, pure LSD, uh, a gram of pure LSD is 10,000 doses. So if you wrap up a few grams of LSD and swallow it, and then it happens to open up inside you on the plane, uh, I mean, that's a very, very serious trip. In you're still flying. Uh, that has happened. And the person involved live to tell the tale. So people have, have been known to accidentally ingest tens of thousands of doses and survive. Uh, psilocybin also has no known overdose values. Now, that's a curious statement, really, because psilocybin kills approximately zero people every year from overdose. Uh, So it's very physiologically safe. But however, it's a class A drug. You can get a maximum of seven years in prison for possession and up to a lifetime in prison for supply. Um, Now what they found in recent clinical drug trials is, well, a a preliminary uh, research I'd say, it's not a poor drug drug trial, that psilocybin should be useful in treating uh, addictions. In this case, tobacco addiction. And they found that one year later, after the person taken one high dose of psilocybin with psychotherapy, that half of their sample had managed to abstain from smoking for a year. For a year later. This is one of the most successful nicotine treatment programs ever. Um, tobacco, on the other hand, kills hundreds of thousands of people every year. is legally available if you're over 16. And doesn't help you get off your other addictions. Now, is there something wrong with that? I can't quite get my head around the, 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 the anomaly there, but there's something strange with that situation. Now the other thing about the psychedelics is they have low dependency risks as well. That means they're not addictive. Uh, I'll put in a caveat, some of them are. Uh, things like ketamine, if you call that psychedelic, can be addictive. Um, a colleague of mine was giving a lecture to a psychology audience on uh, about ayahuasca. not anyone hear about ayahuasca? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I thought you might have done. And, um, He's been researching it for years, an anthropologist, and he was giving this lecture, and he said, and somebody put their hand up and said, but aren't these substances addictive? And he said, oh, no, I would know. I've taken it thousands of times. <laughs> uh, and it's quite right, it's not addictive. You just keep taking it, it's great. Uh. But they're, they're not technically thought to be addictive. In fact, they can be used to treat other addictions uh, with, with great success, as we'll come to. Now, this is quite curious. Um, because one of the reasons these drugs are illegal in the first place, under the classification, is that they have a low, low medical value, which they do, obviously in treating addictions and other psychogenic disorders, and b, that they're addictive, uh, and they're not addictive. So, you know, they shouldn't ever really be classified under those conditions anyway. Now, one of the, the, the genuine potential side effects for pitfalls of psychologic substances are what's called hallucinogen persisting perceptual disorder. Say that fast and not tripping. Um, uh, so that is a condition whereby you know the drugs should wear off, uh, but you still having perceptual distortions. Um, and that could be anything from you know seeing groovy colours to having full-blown synesthesia. Does anyone know what synesthesia is? It's a con- uh, an ordinary condition in some people where you buy, you have a blending of your senses. So you may taste shapes or see sounds. Uh, so I'm very interested in synesthesia, I've been studying it experimentally with psychedelics and I've got three case studies currently of people who took massive recreational doses, accidentally overdosed, and are still tripping effectively. Uh, seven years later or more, they still have experiences, so they still have synesthesia on an everyday, permanent basis. Now, all of them found that quite tricky the first couple of years, now to go and hide. About two years before they could deal with the outside world again, but now they quite <coughs> like it. Uh, so it's, it's been kind of very useful for some of them in making music and art, as you can probably imagine. But that is a genuine risk. We, we find it's very rare in clinical uses, where we're giving out a known dosage. But occasionally, people take very large recreational doses, and they may not stop tripping effectively. Um, there's some survey data, which we don't know how sound it is, but it would suggest it's it's much less than 1% of the population, about 0.1% of recreational users, at least those responding to this survey, reported having uh, persistent experiences or flashbacks, uh, but very few of them saw medical help. Okay, looking at the medical uses then, so what are the potential uses of, of, of psychedelics? And, and they were primarily used, as we said, in the in 50s, initially as mimics of psychosis. But then they began to develop as treatments in their own right. Uh, and, you know, the Sandals Laboratories, who was making LSD in Switzerland, would, would give out free samples of LSD to psychiatrists and psychologists to work with them. And they started using them in therapy. And two modes of therapy started up in that time. One was called psychedelic psychotherapy, where they typically give very high doses, on a one-to-one session, and probably one or maybe two sessions. So very short-term, quick, high-dosage, uh, one-to-one sessions of, of psychotherapy. The other type of medicine, in mostly in Europe, was called psycholytic psychotherapy, and they would tend to give much lower doses uh, over long periods of time, like, you know, repeated uh, psychotherapy, and often in groups as well. And that was kind of the method that was favoured in the UK. And that was actually the first type of, of psychedelic therapy, which is introduced and started in 1952. The idea of, of, of psychedelic psychotherapy is that they have advantages uh, for, the, for the clinician or therapist in that they enable uh, disinhibition, the person can you know, open up, have a loosening of the ego, uh, have access to unconscious material, and if you're thinking in kind of Jungian terms, that is you know, what you're after, and you can maybe get to, the, to that through word association or dreams, but the beauty of, of psychedelics was you'd have access to unconscious material right there and there, live, in, in therapy. You uh, also give access to repressed memories, and the therapist could work through them in real time. So the therapy itself is typically non-directive. The therapist would be there more as a sitter, they allow the person to have the experience, and just guide them through it. Um, so alternating between their inner focus and talking to the therapist, uh, and they were allowed to just express whatever came up. Uh, obviously, it's important, you know, that second setting you make, it you know, no handcuffs or, you know, being locked in a room, certainly in these conditions, and typically it would be um, escorted by kind of evocative substan- uh, circumstances, substances, like uh, music or uh, maybe breath work or maybe kind of encouraging people to go inwards with kind of eye shades. And then afterwards, And this is important, there'll be an integration session as well. So as much as set and setting are as as important as substance, uh, for the kind of experience you'll have, integration is the kind of fourth component, is is important for ensuring that people leave the experience in a way in which they can make sense of it and they're not just completely blown apart and left raw. And then that's kind of currently a bit of an issue People going off to South America in their droves, for ayahuasca tourism, going to a retreat centre in a Ketosh or wherever, taking ayahuasca, getting blown open, having loads of psychological material coming up, but not necessarily knowing what to do with it afterwards, uh, and, and may not have the kind of sufficient integration to enable them to make sense of it or kind of re all those experiences and enable them to function uh, in their life. So um, we we'll can talk more about that later. Uh, so the history of, of, of uh, psychedelic psychotherapy, you know, people like Ronald David Lange was very important, you probably heard about him, he was working here in London, he had a very kind of freestyle approach, he was one of the kind of anti-psychiatrists, and, you know, he would let people just roam around in a kind of essentially an open lunatic asylum, and everyone had free access to LSD and even DMT, and he said the important thing for psychoanalysis was that first we read the works of Freud, you wouldn't be going personal analysis and take LSD. And he thought that was important becoming a good psychoanalyst. Um, Humphrey Osmond, here on the left, of course, was, was a British psychiatrist who came up with the word psychedelic in communication with um, Albert Huxley, the famous writer. Um, so in 1952, psychedelic psychotherapy started in, in the UK, actually, by a guy called Ronald Sanderson, a psychiatrist, and he set up a unit at Worcestershire hospital doing psycholytic psychotherapy, group psychotherapy, and he was doing that for many years. Uh, so one of the things that the, the, some of the earliest um, psychiatrists, Humphrey Osmond and himself and John Smith, his two psychiatrists from London, went out to Saskatchewan in, the, in about 1950 in Canada. Uh, they were given a kind of use of a clinic. And so anyone who knows about Canada and Saskatchewan, is a kind of massive open prairie, uh, there isn't many people there. There's not much to do, and they have very high incidence of alcoholism, and so they tried using psychedelics to treat alcoholism <laughs> because they figured it could mimic those conditions under which people have a spontaneous remission from uh, alcohol addiction, and that's when people have the when they kind of they stop drinking for whatever reason, they can't get any access to alcohol, and they have delirium tremens, which can be fatal. Uh, but in some cases, people have a kind of profound. Uh, what they call organic circasis or uh, mystical-like experiences. And they, they have a kind of breakthrough experience and they realise you know, the, what damage they're doing to themselves and their families and so on, and they're able to s- then stop drinking. So they figured, like, by giving people psychedelics, it could mimic this kind of really cataclysmic event for them in, in a safe way, like delirium tremens. And so they started treating alcoholics with, with mescaline and LSD uh, with quite a lot of success. So there's been a recent meta-analysis where they gathered up all the studies from the past that had, had looked at the, the efficacy of, of LSD for treating alcoholism, and they found that overall that, that it was an efficacious treatment for treating alcohol addiction. Uh, more and more of these reviews popping up all the time, and cycllose has been used for treating all kinds of addictions, uh, such as uh, cocaine, uh, crack, heroin and so on, and whether it's ketamine or iboga, or LSD or psilocybin. Uh, so these things <coughs> to have great potential in treating addiction. It's a bit like fighting fire with fire. Um, now, the other thing about psychedelics that have been used for therapeutically is for intransigent psychogenic disorders. Uh, you know, psychiatry currently is in crisis, right? All of the areas of medicine have advanced, primarily through technological advances and biological discoveries, and so on and so forth. Psychiatry hasn't really made much progress, really. Um, in, in treating conditions, uh, you know, SSRIs are not particularly effective. Certainly, there's a massive placebo effect in their effects. Um, and so, psychiatrists in crisis, and yet we know these substances have great potential in treating psychogenic disorders like depression, anxiety, addictions, even things like uh, anxiety conditions like obsessive compulsive disorder. There's been a pilot study looking at that with great success. And the use of things like MDMA, i.e., ecstasy that's not, but that's what they call it, uh, to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. And it seems to be very effective in that. That's one of the the drugs that has advanced the furthest and its moved towards being licensed as a a kind of genuine medical treatment or intervention. And that's because the MDMA allows people to access these memories, which are traumatic, in a way which doesn't immediately give a fair response. Which is what people who have PTSD have around traumatic memories. They can't even talk about it in therapy. And so there, there's, there's a lot of progress going forward in, in finding using MDMA in treating post traumatic stress disorder. One of the other avenues has been the use of psychedelics in treating patients with cancer, not to treat the cancer, although I, they are starting to find anti tumor properties in some psychedelics. That's the whole of the story but to treat the anxiety and depression associated with having a terrible illness. So people are, say four cancer, they come towards the end of their life, that's quite a heavy trip in itself, you know, people have difficulty dealing with that, they have a lot of fear around death, uh, they have a lot of depression and anxiety, and there's been several studies, some done in the 60s, some have been replicating that again now, and they're finding it's very useful in alleviating people's fear of death. Consequently, their depression and anxiety is also reduced. And um, consequently, people need to take less painkilling medication as they near the end of life. And then incidentally, people also tend to live a bit longer as well. But that wasn't the purpose. So people find that they're better prepared for death. (coughs) They have left fear of it, and they're more able to have it easier and more ready death uh, through... Even in some cases in the study, it's just one high dose treatment with psilocybin and some psychotherapy. Now, why is that? Uh, and a lot of it seems to be due to the mystical experiences that people have, and I'll come back to that. So, there's oodles of studies underway. This is actually massively out of date. Uh, this will just give you a flavour of it. So, there's MDMA studies popping up all over the world, for PTSD, um, use psilocybin for treating various addictions and end-of-life cancer. Uh, use of, if, if, if treatment, addictions and so on and so forth. The list of things, psychological conditions, that psychedelics seem to have some use in treating, it seems to be never-ending. They're somewhat of a, a psychological panacea. And they may also have some uses in treating physiological disorders as well. In the UK, we're a bit behind the curve. Most of our research is in the States. There are some studies going on now. Uh, been going for about the last seven or eight years. I've been involved in the ones in red. Um, and there's new ones popping up all the time. So this really is an expanding field of research. So, now, I've kind of talked on this. So what, what is the difference between psychedelics and other drugs, however, though? Is this just pure pharmacotherapy? Um, now, if it was, if it was like traditional drug therapy, you could just prescribe the patient the drug, maybe monitor them, give them the drug again later. I mean, that's how most drug therapy is done. But the thing about psychedelic, is that it's psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So you have to have some psychotherapy with the psychedelics. It's, it's not psychotherapy alone, and it's not the drug either. It's, it's both of them combined. Uh, and that seems to be important, which, which kind of confuses lots of psychopharmacologists, you know, how do you kind of categorise these things? Um, and one of the important things that all of these all the studies that have looked at it, I found that the important thing is the kind of experience that people have. So in those cases where people have a peak or mystical experience, we find that they have much better outcomes, be it end-of-life cancer or nicotine addiction. So if you, categorize, if you look at those people who have a certain cut-off point for having a full mystical experience, those that have a full mystical experience will have significantly better prognosis and outcomes than those people who don't have a mystical experience. So the actual experience that people are having themselves is hugely important, so it's not just pure pharmacological intervention, and hence the need for psychotherapy as well. So think of it like this: you know, a standard kind of psychedelic experience. You kind of it kicks in, you have a it, it peaks, and then it kind of reduces. You have an afterglow, and then there are residual effects. In some cases, a year or two years later, maybe even 25 years later, in one study. Um, however, those people who have the peak experience, so-called the mystical experience and those have the best outcomes. What do we mean by peak or mystical experience? This is a tricky bit. Um, I mean, one of the definitions of a mystical experience is that it's ineffable, right? It means you can't put it into words. So I'm going to use a little graph.
0: <laughs>
1: Maybe a bit like that. Without the beard. Um, so what do we know about mystical experiences? I mean, this was a kind of... Uh, an issue of, of, of great debate in the 1960s. And, you know, all these people started taking psychedelics and they're saying they're having spiritual and religious experiences, and various theologians say, oh, no, that's total rubbish. You know, you can't have a, an experience, a spiritual, a genuine spiritual experience with a drug. That's just cheating. I mean, they didn't like the idea of it, let alone, you know, the, the notion of it. So um, there's a famous experiment do, done at Harvard by a contemporary of Timothy Leary's a guy called Walter Pankey, he was an extremely um, kind of prolific and overqualified young character. I mean by the time he was 30, he was a medical doctor, a consultant psychiatrist, a theologian, uh, he'd done a PhD in theology as well, all at Harvard uh, at a very young age, and he did this famous experiment, Good Friday experiment, where they tried to settle the argument about whether or not drugs can give you a genuine mystical experience. And they took 20 theologians, theology students at Harvard. And uh, they put them in the Good Friday morning. so they put them in a, a church. And they piped in a little chapel next to the church. They piped through the Good Friday mass, about three hour mass. And they gave half of them randomly, psilocybin. And then they gave them all this questionnaire about whether or not they'd had mystical experience afterwards under kind of like conditions. And guess what? You know, they all, let's define nice first all, Pretty much all of them had a mystical experience. And they defined that by uh, various measures which looked at the sense of unity, the transcendence of time and space, a deeply felt positive mood, a sense of sacredness, uh, objectivity and reality, that the experience felt more real than real, that had inherent paradoxicality. It didn't make sense, but it made sense. Uh, <laughs> and alleged ineffability you couldn't actually describe it, but it was transient as well. And also, that it had positive changes in attitude and behavior. I. long-term changes. And of course by their measures they found pretty much all of those indices were, were significant in those people who had had the psilocybin and put it in the church mass on Good Friday. So that seemed to settle the argument. There was even a, a long-term follow-up study 25 years later by Rick Donnelly, who set up uh, MAPS. Has anyone heard of MAPS? It's an institute in the States called Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies which has been kind of funding psychedelic research for the last eight years or so, and he, he did a follow-up asking, and he managed to track down uh, something like 16 of the original participants in our study, 25 years later, uh, and of uh, nine controls and seven ex- experimental conditions, nine out of 10 of those who'd been in experimental condition were still active in the ministry, compared to only half of those in the control condition, if that says anything. Uh, but what they also said was that all of them fell 25 years later, that it was still one of the most profound spiritual experiences of their life. And these are people who are working in the ministry. They didn't, they hadn't kind of gone, around, oh no, I was just high as a kite. It was like, no, this was a really profound and genuine mystical spiritual experience. Now the argument kind of hung there for a while until John Hopkins University very recently got interested in this and decided they were gonna replicate it. So this was a kind of very run-of-the-mill kind of uh, department of College that were doing Standard approved studies on drug addiction, things like caffeine. And they and just, a professor before he retired decided he was going to replicate the Good Friday experiment, which he did with kind of bells on basically. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but he basically found the same thing. Um, something like two thirds of his, his sample reported a complete mystical experience after one psilocybin session. And uh, two thirds said it was the single most or in the top five. Most meaningful experiences of their lives, compared to only eight percent of people in control condition. It's interesting that anybody in the control condition said this was the most important meaningful experience of their life. They were just getting high on the music and the eye shades. It shows the power of placebo. But you know, by far and away, two thirds of the people in the experimental condition said it was the most meaningful experience of their life, or the top five. To put that into context, they were comparing that to the birth of their first child or a death of, uh, of a parent. Okay? That's how meaningful it was. Um, and they also did a follow-up study, and they found that people's, uh, something like 14 months later, and they found that the people's uh, measures on the mysticism scale hadn't changed. It was still the same. 14 months later, they still felt it was this kind of really profound experience. Um, they also looked at long-term positive changes in, in mood and affect, and they found that they were still elevated 14 months later. Not only by self-report, they asked their family and their friends and their colleagues, is this person much nicer and happier than they were before? And they all agreed. So even by uh, peer report, these people had profound positive changes over a year later. Um, So yeah, as Pankey said himself, you know, the, the, the substances are necessary but not sufficient Um, for a mystical experience. And and setting is important. So, you know, they put these people in a conducive environment for a mystical experience. In the original Good Friday experiment, they were in church. They were theology students. In the the replication study at John Hopkins University, they were all spiritual practitioners. But they weren't in the church. They were in a kind of nice, cozy room. Nevertheless, they had a high incidence rate of mystical experiences. A survey by Michael Wolf reckons that about 25% of casual users will have a mystical experience on their first trip. So, you get a sense of the power of set setting. Nevertheless, a large proportion of people are still having profound mystical experiences, regardless of the set and setting. Okay, so let me move on to a bit uh, more of the kind of, what do we mean by mystical experience? Um, uh, this guy here, Stan Roth, was kind of quite important in this whole story as well. He's a, he was a Czech psychiatrist. And uh, he moved to the States. He started doing psychedelic psychotherapy. He wrote a great book called LSD Psychotherapy. Um, does what it says in the packet. And that was based on his observations of over twenty years of doing this therapy, uh, in which he conducted over four thousand psychedelic-assisted therapy sessions. Um, and what he noticed from doing that work was that people would have extraordinary experiences on a daily basis. Said so reported observing past-life recall, out-of-body experiences, ESP, things like precognition, accurate remote viewing, and space-time travel on a daily basis. This is an occupational hazard. <laughs> All the therapists at the time for the 1960s also reported people having these experiences. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean these experiences are real, but people are having the experiences. Saying that, even Groff himself said in, in, in some of the cases, it was undeniable people were having <coughs> Uh what looked like telepathy or clairvoyance because they were telling him things about themselves that they shouldn't know, <laughs> for instance. Um, so Croft observed these things kind of quite regularly and he, he decided to catalogue them and classify them. He said there was 45, kind of, 45 different types of experience, which you could put into three categories. In kind of an ascending order of mind-blowingness, if you like. And the first type of the experiential extension within space-time and consensus reality. So these are just of really far out experiences, but they don't defy anything we know about the laws of science. So, you know, maybe planetary consciousness or embryonal fetal and phylogenetic experiences. You know, maybe kind of going, feeling, experiencing what it's like to be every one of your uh, genetic ancestors. Maybe going all the way back to the primordial ooze. You know, those kind of experiences that you have on the way into work on the books or whatever, you know, everyday events. So these are kind of obviously extremely mind-blowing experiences, but you know, they could just be very elaborate um, activation of one's own imagination. Uh, so they don't define anything we know about consensus reality. The second type, however, which is where i most of my research, are those experiences which, at face value, look like they do go beyond space, time, and consensus reality. So things like uh, telepathic experiences or uh, cosmic consciousness and so on. Third category we don't really see very often at all, so I should probably disregard them, and they are kind of the most far out. And that's what we call transpersonal experiences of a psychoid nature. As you know about Jung earlier, it's borrowed a term from Jung, and that's where one's uh, experiences of the mind begin to manifest externally, they become externalised. So we include, as Jung did, things like uh, UFO encounters, which Jung thought were kind of psych- psychological experiences manifest in one's external world. So, Groff did a big job of doing that, and that's where a lot of my research lies. I, I, I research what I call exceptional human experiences. Uh, and so, I'm going backwards. Uh, no, not here we go. And so, over the last 12 years, I've been publishing papers and doing experiments and collecting data and doing reviews on several areas of, of experience with psychedelics things like synesthesia, extra dimensional percepts, out of body experiences, near death experiences. Entity encounters, alien abduction, sleep paralysis, interspecies communication, possession, and psy, which is telepathy, precognition, clairvoyance, and uh, psychokinesis. Psychokinesis, if you don't know, is the effect expected one's mind on matter. So anybody here believes in psychokinesis? Raise my arm. Ha! <laughs> don't know did that. You almost had a scammer's moment there, don't you? Yeah. So according to make you, I haven't got time to go into all of that. Uh, but conveniently, or inconveniently, oh, i put it all together in a book which came oh, out very recently, which can get a hold of. <laughs> called, uh, what's it called? Oh, Otherworlds, Psychedelics and Exceptional Human Experience, that's 12 words, years of research, jammed into one little juicy book. That's the plug over. Um, no, actually, I might come back to that, no, that's no, the plug over. <laughs> um, so these kind of experiences that are kind of grist to the mill. These are kind of the daily fodder of people we might call charlatans. Shans, if you don't know, are well it's a, it's a kind of it's a, it's a term that only really applies to people from the Tungus tribe in Siberia. But anthropologists and other people have used this word to apply to people, magico spiritual practitioners who do certain things in a certain way. Uh, and it always involves old states. So a definition of a shaman might be somebody who goes into altered state of consciousness at will in the name of their community to transcend space and time and bring back useful information. <coughs> and also do some healing. And we find these people all over the world. So, for instance, I've been working with the, the Ritual, they actually call themselves Guaranica, but no one can say that. Uh, Indians of, of Mexico, maybe some Payote cactus. All of these different tribes use these substances to transcend space and time and bring back information. Mazatec uh, Indians also in Mexico, where we get psilocybin mushrooms from, and the first discovered using it in 1953 or uh in Siberia, maybe use of this Amanita mushroom, the red and white one, which has gone to a fashion sense. Uh, maybe use of Datura in India, or uh, Pachori in Australia, or Iboga in Africa, or Syrian Rue in Syria, or Ayahuasca, or a plethora of other psychoactive neurohacking cocktails in the Amazon. All over the world we find the use of these substances. Um, so, ayahuasca for instance, you know, people, this is kind of hot, on top of people are going out to the Amazon in their droves and people are coming back and saying, you know, hey what, well, I went out there, I, was, I had diabetes or I had depression or whatever it was, and now I'm fine. Uh, not everybody, but a lot of people are. Now we don't know if this is spontaneous remission or this is kind of genuinely, or some kind of placebo effect, because there hasn't been many clinical t- controlled, randomised group trials of ayahuasca, There has just been the first one done on pressure with positive results. So that's paving the way for other studies. But people who, who drink ayahuasca, if you talk to ayahuasca those people who do this like, as part of their cultural tradition, you know, they talk about uh, having these kind of intense experiences. People will see very colorful scenes. Maybe kind of jaguars are quite prevalent. And it's said you know, that the, the spirit the shaman is, is, is seen as a jaguar. Uh, Snakes are also very prevalent in ayahuasca experiences, uh, which is thought to represent the spirit of the of the plant itself. And in my research, something like 70% of people who take ayahuasca in my surveys have said they encounter what they experience as the spirit or intelligence of the plant itself. So it's a very common experience. Um, It's not always a serpent, though. Uh, However, the serpent has become synonymous with ayahuasca experiences, so much so that people going to South America now, they don't see snakes, they want their money back. It's true. <laughs> of people in the them centre say, yeah, they didn't get the snakes, they want their money back. You know, they feel cheated. Um, you don't always get snakes. Um, so how is it that people come to, 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 if they are getting better, how is it that this is enacted? It could be spontaneous remission, it could be some kind of uh, hypnotic suggestion or placebo effect. And you know, these are the kind of the explanations which are, 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 are kind of favoured within the kind of current scientific medical establishment. Alternatively, it could be that there's some kind of uh, psychopharmacological action going on there, the or pharmacological <coughs> action going on. Uh, do research looking into how you know depression is maybe reduced through reduction of activity in the frontal lobes with psychedelics, um, things like ayahuasca. Uh, the vine is thought to have. Uh, neurogenetic properties, uh, anti-tumor properties, anti-inflammatory properties we're now discovering, autoimmune modulation properties. So there are some physiological effects which we haven't really yet fully discovered. But if you talk to people, oh, a lot of it is to do with the psychological experience. You know, people will have a, a, an a-ha or revelatory kind of experience, like William Blake <coughs> painting Revelation, Whereby they maybe kind of relive some kind of trauma or any any kind of trauma, and, and just have an insight into how their psychological condition is giving rise to a physiological illness, and that in itself, you know, cathartically can be curative. Um, but it gets much weirder than that. You know, Charles talk about, as do people who take ayahuasca, talk about seeing inside bodies. You know, they say they can see uh, organs, uh, and they'll be able to diagnose a person's illness, or they can see cells. Well, they can go down even further, and so they can see DNA, which sounds uh, completely bonkers, obviously, uh, to our Western minds, um, as it did to um, Jeremy Narby, the anthropologist. I'm going to tell you a quick anecdote here, and uh, I'll open up some questions, but maybe. i going to it. But Jeremy Narby's a, a, been a good Western, kind of medically trained anthropologist. He was out in the Amazon, We stood in this tribe called the Ashen Inca, and he uh, He thought, you know, he was studying what they knew about the plants in the forest. He wanted to show that they knew how to resource their their environment well so that loggers wouldn't come and chop it down. Um, And he found that they knew a lot about all the plants in the forest. And and when he talked to them, you know, they said, well, how do you know this plant does this? And he said, oh, you know, ayahuasca, the plants told us. And they were like, yeah, whatever. He thought they were really nice people and they knew a lot of stuff, but he thought they were a bit bonkers because they had all these weird magical beliefs. Then they invited him to drink ayahuasca with them one day, and so he did. He stepped over that divide that anthropologists weren't supposed to do, and he went native. He drank ayahuasca, and then he changed his entire worldview. We didn't think they were bonkers anymore. We thought they were more sane than he was. Um, and he said that you know, there was this high incidence of people seeing these double helix serpents. So it was so that he you know, suggested that they were actually seeing DNA. And he wrote this kind of controversial book called the cosmic serpent DNA and the origins of knowledge. So we put forward this idea that ayahuasca shamans in the Amazon are actually seeing DNA, and that's symbolized as these double helix serpents, which we see in a lot of old folklore and mythology everywhere in the world, in fact. Um, Now, it sounds like a totally untestable, bonkers idea until you know that this man here on the left, Cary Mullis, uh, as a biochemist, receiving his Nobel Prize from the King of Sweden, uh, I think in the nineties for his discovery of PCR polymerase chain reaction, which is a very important process in, in our kind of what well, we understand about genetics these days. It allows us to, to take a single strand of DNA and replicate it and it gives rise to kind of genome mapping and sequencing and all this kind of stuff. So it was hugely important. He got a Nobel prize for it and then afterwards he said, well basically i have taken loads of LSD as able to fly alongside the strands of the DNA at the molecular level see what was going on. True story. Um, obviously, he said this after he got his Nobel Prize. <laughs> uh, but it's also said, probably, well, apocryphally, that uh, the man on the right, Francis Crick, uh, was under the influence of LSD after he'd stolen you know, the data from Rosalind Franklin and was able to kind of determine from the data the, the DNA double-helix structure of DNA itself um, under the influence of LSD. And that's what's been said. Now, that story only came out after his death, so we can't verify it with Crick unless we get a medium in, but that's a whole other bit of research. Um, but we do know that in his lifetime he did like LSD, and he said he would sue anybody who kind of reported this in the news at the time. And I had this on good authority from a friend of his who... who Set up an organisation with him that he used to put on these kind of masked balls at his house with bowls of LSD punch at the door. So he was definitely a big LSD fan. Whether or not he would taken it in 1953 uh, when he discovered the double helix double, uh, structure, we don't know. Uh, but it is possible. Especially seeing as LSD had entered the country in 1952. Uh, but it's apocryphal. We don't really know. It's a good yarn though. It's too good to miss out So is it actually possible? to have uh, an experience of seeing things on a molecular level. Well, not by a current Western scientific thinking, but it could well be an extension of of a person's active imagination, uh, stimulated by psychedelics, based on a wealth of intellectual learning about the things you're experiencing, um, which give rise to experiences of being able to see inside bodies and cells and DNA. We don't really know, but we do know that these substances probably are useful in stimulating uh, the imagination and human creativity. Um, so you might know who this is. We made a few kind of important objects or, of, of the last uh, few decades. Uh, Steve Jobs, of course, and of course he took LSD in the 60s, as did most of everybody in the home computing industry. And he said, doing the LSD was one of the two or three most important things that I've done in my life. Presumably, you know, Apple was up there with with LSD, and maybe his family, we don't really know. But it was important to him. And so he had this kind of uh, double persona, uh, as did in fact, the whole of the home computing industry, in the States. We wouldn't have Macs and Microsoft and all this kind of stuff if it wasn't for psychedelics, probably, or they'd come much later, or they'd look different. There's a great book called What the Dormouse Said. It said how the whole home computing industry, everybody was taking psychedelics. And that's how it came about. Um, Who's the other one, not Steve Jobs? Who's the Microsoft Bill Gates, yeah, that's it. Bill Gates also took LSD. Uh, Steve Jobs said he didn't take enough or his products would have been better. <laughs> 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 um, but it wasn't just the home computing industry. Uh, there was a whole branch of, of physics called quantum cryptography, which came out of a bunch of out-of-work physicists <laughs> who got together and took loads of acid and, and, and worked on theoretical physics because they couldn't get the grants to do kind of lab-based physics, and now quantum cryptography is like a multi-billion dollar industry. There was some research done at the time, uh, the only study was kind where they looked at a kind of creativity in top-level professionals in science and engineering and architecture. They gave them mescaline, and they got them to work on one of their own inherent kind of research problems. And um, You know, they tested them after the mescaline. Uh, most of them said it opened up new avenues of investigation. They attempted numerous novel problems Um, on their kind of measures. They all said that there was no no decrease in any of these indices. Enhanced their ability to solve problems. They were able to work with people afterwards, they said. Enhanced their attitude towards their job. Increased their productivity. They were better able to communicate. And a number of uh, patents, products, or publications came out of that bit of research from the participants. That was one of their indices of success. So things like a mathematical theorem from null gate circuits, a conceptual model of a proton, a linear electron accelerating beam steering device, we've all got one of those, I don't know what that is, and so on and so forth. So there was a number of novel items which came out of that research, um, which you may not be aware of. I was actually involved in a study where we replicated this study uh, with LSD, uh, with top level scientists, in the last couple of years. We haven't published the results yet, so I can't tell you what happened. But we took kind of top-level scientists, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, PhDs in physics and maths, people from CERN and NASA, and we gave them LSD for the first time so they could work on their research problems. And all of them at least expressed some kind of positive outcome in terms of having some fresh ideas or outcomes. And there was at least one patent that has so far come out of that but I can't tell you what it is, I'm just going to show you the picture, you can mark it out for yourself. And i tell you, I'll have to kill you. Um, the point of this being that creativity uh, can be stimulated through, or creative problem solving, it seems to be kind of stimulated through the use of psychedelics. And it's what we call divergent thinking Particularly, is It's that people have fresh associations of ideas, probably something to do with the underlying neurochemistry in that different regions of the brain or communicating with each other, there aren't ordinary talking, to each other, and so you have to have ability to kind of think about things in novel ways. That's called divergent thinking. Conversely, though, we see a reduction in what's called convergent thinking, which is the ability to have normal, logical, linear thinking, and operate heavy machinery, and get on the bus, and that kind of stuff, which doesn't get enhanced by the use of psychedelics. In fact, most of our scientists couldn't operate their own laptops when they tried. Um, But they did have lots of great ideas. The point about that in terms of mental health is, I think you can look at creativity as a kind of polar opposite of mental health problems. Uh, you know, I think creative, if you are creative, or being creative, A, it's an indices of, of mental health, and it's also probably somewhat of an antidote to it as well. Uh, I'll let you discuss that. I haven't got any hard evidence, it's just a kind of intuition. What we also found is that related to creativity, they found that long-term changes in personality through the use of psychedelics. Uh, Well, certainly in one study, the use of psilocybin, they found that one high dose of psilocybin induced enduring changes in personality in the domain of openness. Psychologists, we kind of of, uh, create these kind of artificial constructs about your personality and give them names. And one of the main domains is called openness to experience. Is thought to be a very positive personality dimension. It's related to creativity, your tendency to engage in novel activities, you know, absorb culture, make stuff, do art, and all the rest of it. They found that this was the only personality variable that changed after one high dose of psilocybin. Even long-term, over a year later, they found increases in the domain of personality in those people who had a mystical experience. Now, those people who didn't have a kind of what they defined as a mystical experience, didn't have significant increases in, in openness to experience. Uh, and you, so you can see how this is related both to mental health and to creativity. Um, but you can also see how the psychological experience, and not just the biological effect, is key. Those people who have mystical experiences, as with people in nicotine treatment studies, as with people in end-of-life cancer studies. Those who have mystical experience have the best outcomes. Uh, there's a few other things I should say that, and I looked to touch on this already. There are some possible physiological dimensions to psychedelics which are already now being explored, which we really didn't know about in the 60s. Most of the research um, we're doing now is just repeating what we did in the 60s with better science, finding that they're useful in treating psychogenic disorders like addictions, depression, anxiety, and so on. But we're also finding physiological effects. So they're immune system modulators. Some of them have anti-tumor properties. Um, Some of them have high anti-inflammatory indexes. So things like anxiety and depression, neurodegenerative diseases, are now thought to be linked to inflammation. And psychedelics seem to be able to reduce inflammation. So we've got a physiological mechanism there, potentially, as well. But also in production of new brain cells. So up until a few years ago, neurogenesis wasn't thought to occur, i.e. that you generate new brain cells in adulthood. We now know that you do, parts of the brain, and it's linked to things like BDNF, an enzyme, brain-directed tropic factor, which is elevated through psychedelics, such as iboga, psilocybin, ketamine, and cannabis. And also, in a recent study with harmaline, which is ayahuasca, from ayahuasca, they actually found in vitro uh, increases in neurogenesis, just looking at individual cells. So that has obviously implications for neurodegenerative diseases, and also possibly for psychological Conditions like depression, it allows people to rewire their mental circuitry, develop new kind of memory traces, etc., etc., positive ones. Um, one final dimension is a bit abstract, called eco-psychogenesis. Just made that up. Uh, is well, what about the sense in which people are become more ecologically uh, conscious, become more ecologically minded or orientated? And I think this is also important as a branch of Transpersonal psychology or uh, psychotherapy called eco-psychology. And the main purpose of this eco-psychology is nature as therapy. Like, nature itself can help us heal and get well. And that illness is essentially about our alienation from nature. A lot of psychological, psychiatric conditions are at least massively influenced by urbanisation. Schizophrenia, psychosis, depression, are much higher in urban in urban environments. We passed the tipping point a couple of years ago where there's more people on the planet living in urban environments than living in rural environments. have mega cities with over 30 million inhabitants. Depression in London is running at about 30% of the workforce, okay? These are urban diseases, and it's about alienation from nature. And the interesting thing is, well, what role does psychedelics play in that? So I did a survey of psychedelic users and I asked them, so have your psychedelic experiences changed how much you interact with nature? Um, a very tiny percent said they interact less with nature, having taken psychedelics. The vast majority, about two-thirds, said they interact much more with nature, having had psychedelic experiences. So, you can get people outside digging in holes, playing with worms, <laughs> climbing trees, swimming in rivers, whatever. That's useful. <coughs> how about their... Uh, Connection and concern. We found that 100% of people who are taking psychedelics had an increased connection to nature. So they felt more connected to nature. 100% of people who were taking psychedelics said they felt more connected from their experiences. And from an ecological perspective, not a psychological perspective, two thirds of them had an increased concern for nature as well. Um, I also tried to identify, like, top of the pops, what's the most kind of ecologically conscious psychedelic substance someone could take and it turned out it was psilocybin mushrooms about half of the people taking them had said their concern, connection had increased uh, ketamine was way down at the bottom it actually had the opposite effect just so in case you know and I also looked at the knock on effect for, for our ecology and our, our ecological interaction um, you know there is an adage that to heal ourselves we need to heal nature and that's the kind of one of the root underlying premises of eco-psychology as well. We're living in an ecological disaster, in case you haven't noticed. We're in the biggest wave of mass extinction in 14 million years, and by some estimates, we'll have killed off all the other species in less than 100 years. So it's quite important that we actually have an environment to live in, um, and that can be beneficial for one's own mental health as well. So how do those uh, changes in attitude transpose into changes in behaviour? We found that two of people were more aware of ecological issues. More than half of our sample changed their diet, which is going to have health benefits as well. So they became vegetarian, vegan, raw, whatever. Um, more than half of them increased gardening. Can you imagine that? Extraordinary. Psychedelic to make you, turns you into a gardener. <laughs> Headline Flash. Um, but also that the you know, people joined organisations, they donated money, they adopted animals perhaps the most important one was that 16% of people in my survey changed their career, having had psychedelic experiences, to one that was more ecologically orientated. To give you two examples, two of my people, two of the people in the sample, quit what they were doing and took up PhDs in botany uh, Yeah, having had psychedelic experiences. So the potential uses for these things from a psychological perspective are ever-growing. Uh, like sort of flowering plants in your mind. I was already becoming kind that of poetic again. I was trying to find some way of ending it. But let's leave it there. Thank you very much. I'll ask some questions.